Well, a very warm welcome to you, especially if you've never been to an Ash Wednesday service. Um, I commend your courage. Way to go to just come in and see what's going on. So you might be wondering, why ashes? Well, in both Jewish and Christian history, ashes were a sign of both mortality and repentance. Mortality, because when we die, our bodies return to death. And repentance, because when ancient people felt remorse about something, they would put ashes on their head and wear scratchy clothing to remind them that sin is wrong and it leads to the death of the spirit. And so for ancient Jewish and Christian people, it was a way of confessing sins and asking for forgiveness. It was a powerful, nonverbal way to experience God's forgiveness and his renewal. But if you're like me, we sometimes have mixed feelings about this. And I think it was either last Lent or the Lent before, uh, a priest friend of mine named Tish Warren wrote this, which I think speaks for the mixed feelings we might have about this. She said, I don't want to face the reality of vulnerability. I ignore it altogether for months on end. I'm privileged enough that I can create the illusion of control my own safety, my own self-protection. I distract myself from weakness, from the dark howl of suffering and mortality. Check Facebook, get really busy, read Twitter, get distracted by the controversy of the moment, check Facebook again, focus on the positive. She says, in my false reality of invulnerability, control and easy amusement, in my world of noise, of Pinterest perfectionism, where we who are privileged can be sated with creature comforts and endless entertainment. He says, I can't think of anything more honest, more gritty, more relevant, more needed, and more counterculturally prophetic than Ash Wednesday. A day to face our vulnerability without a filter, without distraction, without Novocaine. So I'm only nine years into being an Anglican, so I think this is maybe my ninth or tenth Lent. I I can't remember for sure, but I've learned a couple things over the last decade, and that is that a healthy, spiritually vibrant, robust Lent, I think, depends on a couple of things. Something that I think we know and that we desire. Psalm 51 alerts us to this knownness, where the psalmist said, I know you desired faithfulness even from the womb. Now, this alerts us to that our sin didn't start with our adolescent hormones or adolescent opportunities to engage in certain chemicals. And when we reduce Christianity to such a thing, we miss the big picture that the creation of humanity was for God to have a people on the earth who was his cooperative friends. That's the faithfulness that was knit in our womb, if you think of Psalm 139. And it's when we depart from that that makes the psalmist say, my sin is always before me. I was sinful from the time my mother conceived me. It's against you and only you that I've sinned. You're right in your verdict. You're justified when you judge because you have all the facts before you. So there's something we know that's important to a holy Lent. And then there's something that we desire that I think is important to a holy Lent. And that is the refrain of our psalm tonight. I desire for you to create in me a clean heart, O God, a pure heart. 
Do not cast me from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation. Love the way Eugene gets this in the message. God, make a fresh start in me. Shape a Genesis week from the chaos of my life. Take the, you know, like, isn't a beautiful picture of chaos over the earth? And Eugene says, Lord, as you made everything that is out of that chaos, Lord, look at the chaos of my life, my heart, my soul, my body, my will, my emotions, my desires. Where there's chaos there, Lord, would you shape in me a Genesis week? This is why Lent is not a bummer. At least it shouldn't be. I go, dang, I can't have chocolate for 40 days, you know. It's like when it comes out of a desire for that, then Lent becomes just like the focus that artists are passionate about, that athletes are passionate about, that dancers are passionate about, musicians are passionate about. When they get in that space, you know, you sometimes hear them call it the zone. And writers will say, I just found myself writing all morning before I know it, it was 10 o'clock. Because that Genesis week is being shaped in there. And this is why Lent is actually a hopeful, creative, generative thing. Well, also every Ash Wednesday, we, we, we read Matthew 6. You have that in front of you in your, in your order of service. The, the main thing to say here is that for the Jews, giving money and praying and fasting, that was standard Jewish religion. Jesus is not against them. He's assuming that that's what any faithful Jew does. What Jesus was teaching them in this passage is to do these things simply. And I would commend this to you for your Lenten practices. Do them simply, not performing for others, but in secret. In this passage, Jesus uses the phrase in secret six times. Apparently it matters to him. And what he has in mind is that you do this before an audience of one. You do it before your father who is in heaven, who we were just singing about, how he delights in our approaches to him. So we do it within our own relationship with God, not, within, not with visible action being primary, but what's primary to Jesus is heart motivation. So that giving up stuff at Lent is simply a tool. It's like, again, an athlete saying, I give up a half hour sleep to get up early in the morning because there's something I want more than sleep. So giving up whatever you might give up is just to remind you that there's something you want more than that thing if it's true. Otherwise, it's just a thing we're doing. But when it's true, it actually has a transformative effect on us. There's a poet by the name of Jan Richardson who wrote a a couple of lovely poems uh, for Lent. This one is called Return a Blessing. So now, before you hear these words, I want you to think now, hold, hold in your heart and mind that I, I love God, I love what he's up to in the world. I genuinely want, wherever there's chaos in my heart, soul, mind, body, and will, I genuinely want a Genesis week made out of that. Now hear this. Remember, you were built for that. The ancient path. It's inscribed upon your bones. The persistent pattern echoing in your heartbeat. Let this be the season you turn your face towards the one who calls to you. Return. Return. 
Let this be the day you open wide your arms to the wind that knows how to bear you home. You were built for this. You were built for spiritual practices that return you home. They're native to you. Listen to me. The bent parts of you, the parts that seem a little rebellious, the parts that maybe seem a little spiritually dead, they are not definitive. They are penultimate. They're real, but they're penultimate. You were built for this. You were built for giving yourself to God. And somewhere deep in you, you know that. Well, we're doing something we've never done in the history of Holy Trinity this year, and that is I'm suggesting to you, as your pastor, a Lenten practice. Now, I don't mind whatever else you might do, and actually you don't have to do what I'm about to suggest. Of course, nothing's a forced march around here. But I felt led to lead us into what I'm calling an unhurried Lent. That this year, we're not gonna just give up chocolate, we're not gonna just give up sugar or gluten or you know, whatever your thing is, although you can do that if you want. But this Lent, I wanna invite you into a particularly robust Lent where we go beyond chocolates or colas to learning to give up hurry and to learn the underlying issues that drive us into hurry. And as we look at them over these 40 days and work with God, work with the Holy Spirit, work with each other, that they would be transformative. And if I had to bet my last dollar, I will bet many of you will have transformative experiences. I am expecting to have a transformative experience over the next 40 days as I give up hurry. In fact, I'm so confident about this that I'm gonna ask you to keep a journal the next 40 days. And when we're done, we're gonna testify to each other. I'm gonna give you a chance to publish your little journal entries. I don't know how we'll do it yet. We'll figure it out. But I'm just so convinced that you will have transformative experiences. And as this community hears how we walked this Lent together and had these experiences, it'll be so great to hear what God did. So this Lent, we're gonna practice slowing. You might wanna drive slower. It really resists the need and the urge to get ahead. You might wanna type slower. It resists a hurried and harried mind. Just being your friend and keeping it real, this has actually become a spiritual practice for me. There are so many times I find myself sitting in front of my laptop and emails are dinging and there's 97 of them and I'm going as fast as I can and pop-ups are coming that I have a text or my phone is doing something or there's a pop-up on my computer screen that some politician just said something crazy, right? It's like nonstop and I find myself typing so fast that I start typing dyslexic. Seriously, I don't have dyslexia in reading, but I start typing dyslexic and I just catch myself. And I just, I take a breath and I begin to just type slower, sometimes really slow. And I'm not kidding, something happens. It feels like something that was harried in me is being zipped up just by typing slower. You might wanna get more sleep. Maybe that's your vow because it really will help you resist a jam-packed life. You might wanna find yourself walking slower. Do you know anything about golf? That in the last nine holes or maybe the last Sunday of, a, of any sort of tournament, when golfers start feeling that anxiety in them, 
If you, if you ever hear, literally their hands start shaking, their minds start swirling, you know what they do about it? They walk slower. It resists anxiety. You might want to slow your mind. It resists, it resists inattentiveness. You might want to eat slower. It'll help you resist ingratitude. You might want to read slower. It will help you resist a life of skimming. You might want to create some daily Sabbaths. It'll really help you resist workaholism. And don't panic, but you might want to turn off your alerts. Just for an hour. Just, there's, you might not know, but on your phone, there's a little button that says, do not disturb. And you can press it and just see if you can handle it for an hour. And if you start itching, just do it for 30 minutes and say, Lord, maybe we can do 45 tomorrow. But just... <laughs> so I, 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 you, you guys all know me well enough to know I don't mind what you do. I want you to do whatever feels good between you and the Holy Spirit. These are just some ideas. They're so important, I think. Walter Brueggemann's famous for writing on the Sabbath, and I've borrowed a couple of paragraphs here because I think they help us think about hurry in his Sabbath sort of way. Brueggemann says, in our, in our own contemporary context of the rat race of anxiety, the celebration of Sabbath, or for us, the celebration of unhurriedness, is an act of both resistance and it's an alternative. It's resistance because it's a visible insistence that our lives are not defined by the production and consumption of commodity goods. I am not a consumer, and I refuse to be, to be um, reduced to a consumer. I know it's good for the stock market. It might even be good for the global economy, but I am a follower of Jesus, and I do not want to be reduced to what I buy or how I live contributes to the stock market or not. Brueggemann says that multitasking or hurriedness is a drive to be more than we are, to control more than we do, and to extend our power and our effectiveness. And such a practice, he says, yields a divided self with full attention given to nothing. Brueggemann suggests that an unhurried Sabbath sort of rest is in stark contrast to the gods of Egypt. Those gods, he writes, steal from us. They, provoke, they promote endless systems of production that are in principle insatiable. The governance of God, on the other hand, is not marked by workaholism, by anxiety over the full functioning of creation. Can you see God up in heaven going, oh, myself? I'm not sure God, I'm not sure creation is fully working. Right, it's, it's just like laughable to think of God living in that sort of anxiety, but it's precisely the kind of anxiety that we live in about the full functioning of our life. And that then leads us to the notion that creation depends on endless work. And the seventh day tells us it doesn't. And if you will practice unhurriedness with me for the next 40 days, you will learn to realize that endless work does not create anything good in any of us. You know, the 40 days of Lent, of course, mimic Jesus's days of fasting in the early pages of the Gospels. And they show us how Jesus nourished himself on the Father and how he invites us through slowing to nourish ourselves on him. In John 6, Jesus said, I'm the true manna, I'm the true bread that has come down from heaven. 
but so often we're like those hairy disciples who just think Jesus doesn't have enough to eat. And he says, no, you don't get it. I have food that strengthens and nourishes me that you can't see. To the woman at the well, you drink of those neurotic sort of religious practices and you're just gonna thirst again. But if you drink the water that I give to you, you will never thirst again. And I'm just suggesting to you as your friend, your longtime friend now, that if you will slow yourself this Lent, you will discover food and water that you've probably never known and find a refreshment that you might not even be able to conceive. Well, the last common Lenten reading is from Joel 2. We read it every year. Even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your clothing. And here again, I want to read to you some lines from Jan Richardson from a poem she wrote reflecting on this passage from Joel 2. To receive this blessing, all you have to do is let your heart break. Let it crack open. Let it fall apart so that you can see its hidden chambers, the hidden places where you hesitate to go. Your entire life is here, inscribed whole upon your heart's walls, every path taken or left behind, every face you turned toward or turned away, every word spoken in love or in rage. Every line of your life you would prefer to leave in shadow. Every story that shimmers with treasures known and with those you have yet to find. Could take days for you to wander these rooms, 40 at least. And so let this be a season for wandering for trusting the breaking, for tracing the tear that will return you to the one who waits, watches, who works within the rending to make your heart whole. Now in this quiet moment, maybe that can become an invitation for you to hear the one who waits calling, who watches, who works within the rending to make your heart whole.